Revelation chapter 1, the last part of verse number 7, and we've been diving into what John saw, and we've been just looking at some wonderful themes here uh, in the book of the Revelation. Remember, as God reveals to John in this wonderful part of the Bible, John saw the book, God's divine plan. And then God let John see, remember, the bride. That's God's divine people. And then God let John see the beloved. And that's God's divine person. And I believe Revelation chapter 1 gives one of the greatest glimpses of the glorified Christ that any one chapter of the Bible. Now, all the Bible is about Christ. It all glorifies Christ. But there's something special about Revelation chapter 1 in the way it describes the person, the work, the wonderfulness, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And by the way, the Christ that John saw when he was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos is the same one that we will see who's coming back one day for us. And I'm glad we'll see him face to face. And I'm glad that is a reality that Jesus is coming and we will see him again. You might want to make a few notes tonight as we go through this. Remember, we looked at his name Jesus, Jesus Christ, faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, prince of the kings of the earth. Right down beside of that tonight, he's the celebrated Christ. I'm glad there's none like him in his name or in his nature. And then we looked at the three us's beginning in verse 5 and verse number 6. And last Sunday we looked at that first one, loved us. And not only see the celebrated Christ, but I'm glad he's the compassionate Christ. Loves us. And Brother Daniel and I had a good time preaching this one together. The second, he not only loved us, but washed us. And he's not only the celebrated Christ, the compassionate Christ, but he is the cleansing Christ. I want to emphasize tonight the last part of verse number 6. He not only loved us, he not only washed us, but notice what it says in verse number 6, and hath made us. I believe these three us's correspond with Psalm 126 in verse 3, where it said, The Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we're glad. And I wonder how many agree tonight that God's done some wonderful things for us. I'm glad he loved us. I'm glad he washed us. But I'm glad in verse 6 the Bible said that he made us. So therefore he is not only the celebrated Christ. Ain't nobody like him. He's the compassionate Christ. He loved us. He's the cleansing Christ. He has washed us. But I'm glad he is the converting Christ. He made us. And then, of course, in verse 7, he's the coming Christ. Behold, he cometh with clouds. In verse 8, he's the conquering Christ. 
And I'm glad he ain't like Brother Joe. He does have the keys. Can I get an amen right there? Well, let's emphasize tonight that in verse number 6. Hath made us kings and priests unto our God. You realize tonight we were nothing, but he loved us. We were sinful, but he washed us. And our lives were bent out of shape, but he made us. And I thought about preaching a message sometime on what did the Lord make of us. I'm glad he made us what we are. This verse corresponds with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature, a new creation. I don't believe the earth began with the Big Bang. I don't believe it, uh, two novas collided into each other. I don't believe a tadpole uh, jumped out of a pond and became a monkey, and the monkey became a man. I, I, don't, I think mankind does some things that probably monkeys don't even do. Can I get an amen? I believe God made, I believe God created the heavens and the earth. And just as much as God made a sun because there was none, God made a moon because there was none, God made some stars because there was none, God made dirt, grass, God made man because there were none. Well, there were no saved people. There were no children of God because we all were bent out of shape. But I'm glad at Calvary because he loved us. Mm. And because he washed us, he has made something out of our life. Now, before I get into two big words in verse number 6, uh, let me run a little Bible study with it. You don't have to keep up with this. But I just searched that little word the best I could, made. It's mentioned over 500 times uh, in the New Testament. And out of those 500 times, I just began to underline some verses that referred to what God Jesus made in your life and in mine. You've read these verses, I'm sure, at different times. But listen how it comes together. Romans chapter 5 verse 19 said, He made us righteous. I'm glad the converting Christ takes sinners and makes them righteous. Romans chapter 6 verse 18 said, Made us free from sin. Made us free from sin. Listen to this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22. And Adam all die, but in Christ we are made alive. I'm glad he's the living Savior. He makes us alive. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. It says he has made us able ministers. In other words, he has given us the ability to serve him and love him and bless his name. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, We've been made accepted in the beloved. God accepts us through the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 6. He hath made us to sit together in heavenly places. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. He has made us one. 
Listen to this. Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse 13. He made us nigh by the blood of the cross. Lord, have mercy. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. We've been made partakers of the saints of light. Listen to this. Colossians 1 and verse 20. Made peace through the blood of his cross. Titus chapter 3 and verse number 7. We've been made heirs into the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 4. Been made partakers of the heavenly gift. Listen to this one. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Been made partakers of the divine nature. Now brother you just think what the Lord has made of us. Because he's the converting Christ. Made us one. Made us alive. Made us accepted. Made us righteous. Made us heirs. Made us partakers. Evidently God can take a nobody and make them somebody. Every time I read about that I think about the... One line in that hymn, nothing in my hand I bring. Nobody has ever came to God with nothing in your hand that you could barter with God for salvation. We came like the woman at the well with an empty water pot. But thank God we left with the river in our soul. I'm glad he hath made something out of you and I. Now let's look at verse number 6. At the two analogies he uses. He hath made us, you and I that have been washed, you and I that have been loved, you and I that have been accepted, you and I that have been made heirs. He hath made us. And when I see this us, I'm back to verse number 5. How could he love us? And then wash us. And now he's made us. By the way, you know who the us is talking about, don't you? The blind, the depraved, the wicked, the undeserving, the lost, the condemned. And every rotten adjective you can think of goes right by our name. That's us. I'm glad he loved us. And I'm glad he washed us. But it says, and hath made us. Now watch these two analogies. Made us kings and priests. Now, can you imagine being blind sinner, alienated from God, desperately wicked, totally lost, headed for hell, and the Holy Ghost tells John, write that bunch of us's. And tell them that he loved them. And tell them that he washed them. And tell them that he made them something. Well, what did he make them? Of all the analogies, he said, kings and priests. Wow. How in the world can God take a us that's lost, condemned, headed to hell, Make us a king and a priest? Well, he couldn't do it if he didn't love us. And it wouldn't be possible if he didn't wash us. 
But because he loved us and because he washed us, he was able to make us kings and priests. Now, when you read that first one, king, do not do what a lot of prosperity, and I don't even like to put these two words together, prosperity gospel. I I don't even like to hear people say false gospel. There's no such thing as false. Gospel is real. But, I mean, these people that name it and claim it, you know, everything's just wonderful. They call them prosperity gospel. The only gospel is the real gospel. But don't read into that that because God has saved us and loved us and made us that we're supposed to be wealthy and healthy all the days of our life. You see, there's only one problem with that philosophy. It doesn't fit the Bible. If that philosophy was true, then poor old Job that Brother Joseph preached about would have been out of it. You say, well, don't you believe in blessings? I do believe in blessings. I believe in privileges. But some of the greatest Christians I ever met in my life couldn't rub two nickels together. And some of the greatest Christians I ever met in my life were sick in their body. You say, well, what does it mean then? If we've been made a king, how come we're not wealthy and prosperous and name and claim everything? It's talking about our position in Christ. Now, if it's talking about our position in Christ, then what is a king? A king is someone with power, with authority. A king is somebody who has been born into a royal family. Well, glory. And they have a royal lineage. Well, I want to tell you, when God loved you and God watched you and God saved you, you had a royal birth. And you're in a royal lineage. You said, what kind of lineage is that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Better than that. What do you mean? David and Ruth and Boaz, one better than that. We're heirs of God, children of the king. Our name is in the divine lineage. And, 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 a, and a king is someone that has a position of power and authority. You say, well, what kind of power, authority does a child of God have? Well, The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Word of God. The power of prayer. Listen to this. The power of praise. The power of faith. Listen, people that are saved, we're not some little anemic, defeated, ragtag army. We're the children of God. And there's power, there's authority in Christ. And I'm glad the Bible said to them that received him in John 1, 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The power of the word of God, the power of the gospel, the power of faith, the power of prayer, the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit is come upon you. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. A king is somebody that has a kingdom. We're part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of truth. Well, glory. 
the kingdom of righteousness. And a king is one who reigns. And one day we shall reign with him forever and forever. And I'm a, I never realized there were people that didn't believe that one day we're going to reign, but we're going to reign with Christ and sit upon his throne. And I'm glad God has a place for the family. I believe that's what got that thief in. Because that one reviling thief said, If you be the Son of God, save yourself and us. But that other thief said to that foolish thief, This man hath done nothing amiss. We are receiving the just reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. That thief looked at the man in the middle and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I'm not the sharpest rock in the box, but I do believe if you think somebody's got a kingdom, then they must be a king. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And I'm glad one day I will be with my Lord and I will be with my Savior. But paradise won't be in the heart of the earth, on the opposite side of hell, on the other side of a great gulf. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven, he led captivity captive. And now that place of the abode It's not in the heart of the earth on the other side of hell, separated from a gulf. It's been transported to the third heaven. Up on high, way above the stormy clouds and trials of this life. Oh, he loved us and he watched us and he took a bunch of us's and made us kings. Authority. Somebody that's got power operating in their life. You're looking at King Joseph. I'm a child of the king and an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And we will reign with him forever and forever. Let me say this tonight. Why would we ever live like paupers when our father is a king. Why would we ever not enjoy the power and the blessings and the fullness of God when our Father is the King of kings and Lord of lords and we're the children of the king? So he made us kings. And beside of that, write down the word authority, power, privilege. And I hear a lot of people today Lampooning. Well, I was privileged. I was born privileged. Well, I wasn't born the first time privileged. But I want to tell you, when I got born again, what a privilege. What a privilege to be a child of the king. But notice the second analogy he uses in verse number six. And hath made us kings and priests. Kings and priests. Now, in the Bible, what is a priest? 
Well, you think about a man of God. You think about the man that wore the ephah that represented the people. You think about one that would pray for the people, represent God to the people, the people to God. But there's one word that describes the priest, especially the high priest, and it's the word access. If the word authority describes the king, then the word access describes the priest. You remember in the Old Testament economy, there was that tabernacle. And that tabernacle embodied the manifested presence of God. And the glory cloud dwelt on top of the tabernacle. God was dwelling with his people. Well, to get that cloud to come, the debt of sin had to be paid. And so on the day of atonement, that one day, that high priest would take that lamb or that goat or that bullock. He would slay it. He would kill it. He would burn it on the brazen altar. He would put his blood in a basin. He would leave the brazen altar, go by the brazen laver, wash his hands and feet so he'd be fit to go into the Holy of Holies. He would go into the holy place where the table of bread and the altar of incense and the lamp stand. And then he would go behind the veil in that 15 by 15 cubicle called the Holy of Holies. And then behind that veil in that little Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant which manifested the presence of God. In that Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded, a pot of manna, and a copy of that broken stone that Moses threw on the ground. And everything in it spoke of the rebellion and the sins of the people. But remember, on top of all that was a golden lid called the mercy seat. And on the opposite ends of the mercy seat, that were the cherubims with their wings stretched out. And the glory of the Lord would dwell between those two cherubims when the high priest would take the blood that was shed at the brazen altar, bring it through the proper channel, bring it into the Holy Holies, and he would apply or he would put that blood on that mercy seat. It's called atonement. It's called propitiation. You see, the sin, the rebellion was in there, but on top of that, between them and their sin, was the mercy seat. And what brought mercy was the perpetuating, the toning blood. And when that blood was on the mercy seat, and the mercy seat was on the Ark of the Covenant, that's when the glory of God would come down. Now, a prophet could pray. He could preach. He could lead the people, but only the priest, only the priest could go into even the holy place and and definitely the holy of holies. He had on his apron bells sewn to the bottom. And remember in that holy of holies, there was no chair. Because that high priest could not sit down because his work was never finished. And he had to walk around that mercy seat. And as he walked around, those bells on his apron would 
ring and they could hear that the atonement was being made. If folks' bells were to quit ringing, then he was unfit. There was sin in his own life and God would kill him. You go in there and drag him out, God would kill you. So that was a rope tied to his leg. So if the bells quit ringing, they drug him out of there because they couldn't even go in to get a priest that had been smitten before God. Listen to this. A king could declare war. A king could pass laws. A king could rule the people with a rod of iron. But even the king of the nation, the highest potentate in the land, could not go through the holy place into the holy of holies and stand before the raw manifested presence of God. The leaders of Israel couldn't do it. The politicians couldn't do it. The prophets of the land couldn't do it. Even the kings of the earth could not do that. There was only one person, only one office. By the way, most of the time he never preached a sermon. And he never ruled and reigned and made laws for the people. But what the prophet could not do and what the king could not do, the priest was the only one that through the blood of the sacrifice could go behind the veil, well, glory, and stand in the very raw presence of God. He could do what a king could not do. He could do what a prophet could not do because he is the one that had access to the throne room. Out of all the things that the one that loved us and the one that washed us, of all the things he could make us, he made us a priest. Now, I'm not knocking off on your religion. I'm not trying to be ugly and throw stones at everybody or anybody that ain't like us. But that's why Baptists, that's why we Baptists don't have priests. That's why we call our pastors preachers or other choice names. But we're, we're not priests. That's why you don't come to me and say, I got to go through you to get to God. I can't get you to God. I can't get you to God. And I don't want to break out another subject, but the East Coast from New York down to Georgia for hundreds of years in this country, was paved by the blood of preachers called Anabaptists that stood against the political establishment of the day and said, no, we're not going to infant sprinkle our babies to know they're going to go to heaven someday. No, they believed you must be born again. They believed in individual soul liberty. They believed that every man was responsible to receive or, re or reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And when that particular individual exercised their soul liberty, Lord have mercy, if you're a Calvinist, this is tearing your nerves up. 
and, and exercise your free will to accept or trust Jesus Christ. The moment you did trust Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ, you didn't have to go through your mama or your daddy or your brother or your sister or your preacher or your pastor. We call it the priesthood of the believer. Baptist is found on that. Modern Christianity is found on that. The priesthood of the believer. You can go to God in prayer. You have access to the throne of grace. You have access to the very presence of God. Through your church membership, never. Through your marriage, never. Through your family tree, never. Because on a hill far away was a brazen altar called the old rugged cross. And not a lamb, not some lamb, but the lamb of God shed his perfect immaculate blood for your salvation. And he stormed into the third heaven, put that blood on the mercy seat, obtained eternal redemption, ripped the veil from top to bottom. And it says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, made die by the blood of Christ. I can go in. I have access. I can call upon the Lord. I can live in the presence of the Lord because I've been made a king and a priest. Woo! I have authority and access into the body of Christ. And when I didn't think, when I didn't think it couldn't get any better, this dawned on me the other day. You know, in that Old Testament economy, that tabernacle, they would pitch it and they would set it up. The 12 tribes would encamp around it. And they'd have to go through the tribe that camped in front of the gate, which means Judah, which means praise. You'll figure that out in a minute. And as they worshiped God on that day of atonement when the cloud would come down, I'm sure it's a wonderful thing. It had to be a wonderful thing. But you know what? They had to go to that place to see God. They had to go to that spot to feel God. They had to go to that spot to worship God. The glory of the Lord filled the house. You know, the tabernacle later on became the temple, the permanent place. And when Solomon built it and dedicated it, the Bible said the glory of the Lord filled the house. It got so thick the priest couldn't even get in there. God done took over. But you know what? When you left that tabernacle or you left that temple, you went home, God didn't go with you. He stayed right there at that place. Then the next week, he had to go back up there and see God again. Go up there and feel God again. Go up there and worship God again. When that ceremony was over, you left that house and you left God and you went on back to your place. Old Testament economy. But in the New Testament, I went so fat I'd run. Bless God, I ain't fat no more. I'm going to throw them fat jokes away. Hey, in the New Testament economy, that the veil has been written and the ultimate price has been paid. 
And have you noticed since Jesus came, the Bible don't talk about no more lambs. Since Jesus came, it don't talk about no more priests. When Jesus came, it don't talk about any more kings. Because that lamb, that king, that priest was the only one we'd ever need. And now in the New Testament economy, watch this. When that blood was applied, that glory would fill that house. Because the blood had been applied. But in the New Testament economy, on this side of the cross, when you trusted the blood, the blood wasn't put on the mercy seat. It was put on you. Whoop! It was applied to you. It covered you. So therefore, that same glory, the Shekinah, that filled that room because the blood was applied. When God applied the blood to you by faith, that same glory is in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. So therefore, Paul could write the church at Corinth and say, What know you not, Second Corinthians First Corinthians 6 verse 19. What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Which is in you, which you have of God. And you are not your own for you have been bought with a price. Someone said, man, I think it's awesome that that building was so beautiful that a holy God could move in it. I'll have to agree, but I know something better than that. You and I have been so made through the blood of Christ that that same God that moved in that building now lives in you. Now the glory is in here. So therefore, in a few minutes, when I dismiss, you're going to walk out of this room you're going to get in your car. And if you don't backslid, driving in this traffic, getting home, God's going to walk out this building with you. <laughs> God's going to get in that car with you. God's going to ride home with you. I love to preach. And when you walk in your house, God's going to walk in there with you. You're going to go to sleep. God's going to stay right there. You're going to get up in the morning. God's going to get up right there. When you leave your house tomorrow, go back, God's going to go with you. Because in the Old Testament, God came and went. God came and went. He came upon his prophets. He came upon his psalmist. He came upon his priest. He came upon his kings. He came upon his people to do a work. But in the New Testament, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, it's more than God came upon us. It's God moved in us. And he'll never leave you. And he'll never forsake you. And I know I get aggravated sometimes. Lord, have mercy. How's a man going to be married to a woman and not get aggravated? I'm like everybody else. I get aggravated sometimes and I'll say, it's God forsaken place. Let me tell you something. If you can ride in this traffic in Atlanta, 
don't even blow your horn or something, you're spiritual. And you make me sick. <laughs> I was sitting still one day on Interstate 85. That's usually the, the only one that works. And even that one was discombobulated. And I'm going to be late where I'm going. I am fuming. And I take my fist. And as I raise it to slam that stirring wheel, the horn blows. And I looked, and that was the most spiritual man I ever met, Sammy Allen. I went. He rolled that one. What are you doing, boy? I said, boy, this traffic's terrible. That's construction. He said, yeah, it's going to be nice when they get it done. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, me too, Brother Sammy. That's exactly what I was thinking. How nice it's going to be when they get through with it five million years from now and somebody else gets to drive in it. But aren't you glad when we leave here tonight? God's going to go with us. Because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. In closing tonight, listen to this. The us that was sinful, the us that was depraved, the us that was lost. He loved us. He washed us. Then he made us. Last year, before I got all discombobulated with my vocal issues, I was preaching on revival on Wednesday nights. And I'm sure, you know, we don't have that go to crowd on Sunday night, much less, you know, Sunday morning we have a blowout, Sunday night we have a turnout, by Wednesday we didn't have a fallout. But one Wednesday night I was preaching on revival from the life of Hezekiah. Anybody remember that? Wow, three of you, that's real humbling to a preacher. But remember when Hezekiah got that message, from that threatening king, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. And he spread that letter before the Lord. And he prayed through that veil. And God answered his prayer. And sometime during the night, God sent an angel. And the enemy was defeated when the morning came. And in that message, if you remember... Hezekiah is a king with authority, but he was not a priest. He could not go in the Holy of Holies. He had to pray through that veil over there, what was in there, by faith. And I made this statement. If God can send the victory to a man who can only draw nigh and get close, what in the world could God do in your life and mine? Because we more than do draw nigh. We do more than get close. We can go in. That veil that used to say, Gentiles, stay out. Notice has been rent from the top to the bottom. I read this one time in a Bible dictionary about that veil. Erdersheim, who wrote the great book on the culture of the New Testament, said that veil was so thick and intertwined in its material 
that you could take two yoke of oxen pulling in opposite directions. That'd be like two John Deere tractors pulling in opposite directions that those oxen could not even rip that veil pulling in opposite directions. It was so strong. But yet, when Jesus shed his blood on Calvary, hallelujah, and when the veil of his flesh was rent, and the rocks rent, and the graves rent, and the high priest given up, written his clothes, God said, I think I'll tear up something. And he rent that veil from the top to the bottom. Now it says, come on in. Come on in. Aren't you glad the one that loved us is the one that washed us and the one that washed us is the one that's made us. I'm glad he took a nobody and made us somebody. And he's going to take us somewhere worthy is the Lamb. Our Heavenly Father, we love you tonight.